We assemble again in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. May we come before our Creator this morning and Redeemer in an atmosphere of reverence and yet with joy at the same time that we bow before Him joyfully in what He has done for us. May we in turn give glory to Him. Today's message will be the fifth in the series on the topic of the all-seeing God, which is an exposition from Psalm 139. If you would be turning there in your Bibles, <clears throat> bear with me this morning. I have a throat problem and may have to continue. I've already swallowed several cough drops and I may have to have some more. The title of the message today is The Omnipotence of God, and we will read verses 13 through 18. Would you join with me by standing and reading together from God's Word, and may we approach it with reverence. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18. Ready? For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in my book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand, and when I awake, I am still with thee. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. We have considered from David's writings in the previous messages the all-knowingness of God. That is, he is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. We've also considered his omnipresence, that he is everywhere throughout the created order in equal parts and is wonderfully uh, present in all times and all circumstances. But what value would that be if a being could be everywhere and have all wisdom if he did not have the ability and the power to carry out and execute the wisdom in his plans? So this brings us to the third triad concerning the attributes of God, and that is his omnipotence. And David chooses to illustrate the omnipotence of God by pointing us to our own created body and the intricacy in which that God has fashioned it. When we read in the opening chapters of Genesis of God creating the heavens and the earth, we see the splendor of it all. 
But let us not forget that his crowning creation was man. So let's then focus upon man this morning, as David would give us to us, demonstrating the all ability of God, his omnipotence to create this being called man. Begin with me as we follow through the text today. You'll need your Bibles there open. We'll be using the regular King James Version, although we'll be referring to some other translations in the process ahead of us. Verse 13. David said, You have possessed my reins, or you have covered me in my mother's womb. The word possessed in our King James Version and the Hebrew word is also translated elsewhere in the Bible as purchased or bought. In the English Standard Version, the translation rendered, you have formed my inward parts. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. But when the word possessed is used, it denotes ownership and implies perfect and intimate knowledge of that which is owned, that which God has created. He has purchased it. He has bought it. He understands to the most intimate detail of what he has brought to pass, so that David... Yet unborn, now listen, was under the control and guardianship of God. Reflect on that. That before David ever had a being, this all-wise, all-present being of God had the ability to lay out a plan for David, beginning with the formation of him within his mother's womb. You have possessed my reins. Now, the word reins is an obsolete English word, and it refers to the kidneys. The other translations describe it as the inward parts. And it is used to describe the inward or the hidden man, that which you and I cannot see in others. And God is acquainted with the most secret things concerning us, for he has laid it out for us in his creation. Here's an interesting expression, too, in verse 13. The word covered means to protect and defend, and it also, you ladies will appreciate this, it means to weave or knit together. And thus, in the English Standard Version, it reads like this, You have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Isn't that interesting? I like that. I like that concept. You have taken and within the inward parts of my mother's body, you have knitted me together. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. And therefore, he has placed a protection and a defense upon David. And thus, God has personally 
put our parts together as one weaves a cloth. Whether it is knitting or quilting, whatever that it is, it is that parallel or that metaphor that is used here. Our human body has been knitted together like an individual would knit a piece of cloth, taken all the pieces and brought them in unison. In the 10th chapter of Job, in verse 11, let me quote that for us. Thou hast clothed me with skin and flesh, and hast fenced me with bones and sinews, or muscles. Thou hast granted me life and favor, and thy visitation has preserved my spirit. Also, Psalm 100 and verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, he is God, it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That means that we didn't get here by evolutionary processes at random, but that we are the product of divine creation. And no wonder then, Brother Jim, that God knows us. He made us. <laughs> the Creator ought to know what he's made down to the most intimate detail of knitting us together out of nothing within the womb of our mother. Verse 14, David says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knows right well. Look at the expression, I will praise thee. Praise is often rendered and translated, give thanks in the Bible. Psalm 136, verses 1, 2, and 3. O give thanks unto the Lord, or O praise the Lord, interchangeable. For he's good, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. O give thanks unto the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. So look at that in that expression. David uses the, the term, I will praise thee. It can well, well be translated, I will give thanks unto you. Are you a thankful person this morning? Are you thankful that God has given you an existence? And that he has given you an existence as demonstrating the highest and the crowning of all of his creation? Brother Asa, you could be a frog on a, in a pond somewhere. You know that on a lily pad, croaking this morning. You could be that. But God chose in his wisdom and his power to make you in his own image and after his likeness. Oh, give thanks unto God for that. He is a tremendous designer. God is the author and finisher of our being. Our parents were only the instruments that he used. And as we think of our own physical creation... Our souls then should vibrate with joy and give praise unto God. 
the saints in heaven, praise God. Should we not likewise do so here on earth? Revelation 4.1 Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. That's what the saints in heaven are saying. You've created everything. You created it for your own pleasure. You're worthy of honor and glory. I possess a body and a soul this morning. I ought to give thanks, praise unto God for giving me this being that he has made. Reflect on this statement. There's no greater way to disgrace an artist than to disregard and ignore their work. Hmm? Someone paints a marvelous picture and someone comes by and spits on it. You couldn't do more disgrace to the one who painted the picture. Someone composes a tremendous poem or a song and someone mocks it and makes fun of it. You couldn't do any more disgrace to the artist. God is a marvelous, omnipotent artist. And for creatures to come out of the womb speaking lies and disregarding their own creator, what greater disgrace could be done unto God than to merely ignore or rebel against him for giving us so great a being? Let's consider next, if you would. The expression, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David is saying, I am like a richly colored garment. You remember Joseph's coat of many colors. Embroidered with nerves, blood vessels, and muscles. I heard on TV the other day, and I don't know the factualness of this, that there are supposedly 90,000 miles of blood vessels and arteries in the human body. That's only beginning. I've read articles like that. Some of you may have. Of just how this body, it just blows your mind, if I may use that uh, vulgar terminology. Uh, When you... Think of what we are made up of and how delicate we are put together. Augustine or Augustine made this statement. He said, men go abroad to wonder at the height of the mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. <laughs> As you here in my audience know, my wife and I had the unique privilege of going on an Alaskan cruise here a few weeks ago. And I still wake up in the night reflecting on the marvels of the creation of God and its pristine beauty. 
undisturbed by cans and candy wrappers and things like that, of just looking at the beauty of God in the creation. And I have to say with Augustine that admiring all of that, I neglected coming home and failing to reflect upon my creation. That that the sun, moon, and the stars are not the crowning act of God, but man is. Consider this omnipotent God who can speak, and the heavens and the earth come into place, but then consider it does not stop there. It grows, and our focus is not just on the rocks and the mountains and the ocean and the waters and the wind. It's on man. Who am I, O Lord, that you've been pleased to give me a being? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, like a colored, embroidered, knitted garment. Nerves, blood vessels, muscles, all entwined together. Look next. Marvelous are thy works. The forming of our bodies, and then the forming of the soul within the body, and the forming of the new creature within the soul are all God's omnipotent works and should be given, he should be given all the praise. I forget where I was preaching, somewhere up in northern part of the United States, Iowa, South Dakota, or so forth, and I was preaching on the miracle of the new birth. And uh, there was a lady I didn't know there in the audience that I saw she was troubled what we were saying because she got the drift of where we were going that uh, until God gives the new birth, man is not going to repent and believe. And I could tell she was having problems with that because her theology obviously was that man repents and believes of his own free will and then God grants the new birth. We were discussing it afterwards, and in her frustration, she said, Sir, you'd think it'd take a miracle to get saved. And I said, you got that. You got it. It took the omnipotent power of God to not only create a soul within my body, but to renew that soul in the new creation. Out of darkness, the light has shined forth. Marvelous of thy works. Thus God should be given all the praise. Amen? If you're saved today, it ought not to be your will that is praised. It ought to be the will of God who spoke and spiritual life came into existence. David says, my soul knows right well. David was no agnostic. He knew He was no doubter. His soul knew the Lord and that all things are of him. For in him we live and move and have our being. Psalm 100, verses 3 and 4 again. Know ye that the Lord, he is God, it is he that madeth and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. 
Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. That's the duty of a child of God. Now move with me to verse 15. The psalmist says, My substance was not hid from thee. That can also be translated, My frame. My frame was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously or skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. The word curiously can also be translated intricately, woven in the depths of the earth. God forms us by his power in the hidden realm of the womb that he may later reveal us openly for all to see. (laughs) I like to look at it like a Christmas present. In secret, you don't know what's in there. And he forms us in secret that it may become open what he has designed and purpose. This is similar to the inward process of sanctification. The changing of our moral character in its beginnings and its conception. It's the spirit that begins it. It's the spirit that causes us to grow and progress in holiness of life. Our King James Version uses the expression curiously wrought. can also be translated, as it is in Psalm 45, verses 13 and 14, as needlework. Needlework, staying with the metaphor of the weaving. There in Psalm 45, verses 13 and 14, the king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. Also, it's translated embroidered. In Ezekiel 16 and verse 10, I clothed thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. Now go back to our concept in verse 15. My frame, my substance, was not hid from you when I was made in secret, and knitted together in the lowest parts of the earth. Curiously wrought needlework. No tapestry of cloth can equal the human fabric of muscles, nerves, and veins. Ladies, I don't care what beautiful a garment you can make, whether it's a blanket or whatever it is, you cannot compare with the beauty of the human body when you look at how intricate all of the muscles and the nerves and the veins are knitted together to where they function 
And we spend most of our days not even remembering that. We just go about assuming all these things, same way the air we breathe. But this is how God has made us. David would have us stop and think about the omnipotence of God. Now here's a real unusual expression. Made in the lowest parts of the earth. This is a term denoting a mysterious, lowly, hidden place or state of being. A a mysterious, hidden place or state of being. The figure, the lowest parts of the earth, is derived from the darkness found in caves and pits in the earth. Its uses are several in the Bible. I, for time's sake, will not take you to these, but if you're interested in doing a study on them, why, come to me afterwards and we'll give you the text. This expression, lowest parts of the earth, is found in Psalm 63, verses 9 and 10, where it refers to death and the grave. Then in Psalm 139 and verse 15, here in our text today, it refers to the womb of a woman. In Isaiah 44 and verse 23, it refers to a valley between two mountain ranges, the lowest parts of the earth. In Ezekiel 26.20, it refers to the pit and death. Ezekiel 32, verses 18 and 24, it also refers to the pit and death or the grave. And then in Ephesians 4.9, it refers to the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, He who descended into the lowest parts of the earth. It's not talking about the grave or hell. It's talking about how He became a human being. He who left heaven's glory and descended into the lowest parts of the earth. Description of Him being formed in the womb of the virgin. Verse 16. Thine eyes, or your eyes did see uh, my substance, or my unformed substance, yet being imperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. (laughs) You able to comprehend all this? Hmm? This is profound. Thine eyes did see my substance when it was unformed. God works from a preconceived pattern. Hmm? Ladies, again, can you appreciate that? You don't set out knitting without you have a preconceived pattern. If you saw some of my knitting, well, you would understand that you need a pattern. 
mother tried to teach me that, what was it, crocheting, whatever that is, with those Chinese sticks that you used to eat Chinese food with. That's all I could ever get out of them, that's what use they were. She'd show me how to do all that. It wouldn't work. And I'd end up, she'd leave the room, and I'd end up, and there'd be a ball all wound up like that. I had no pattern in mind. I was just doing that. Someone who is a weaver starts out with a preconceived design. We have seen that God is all-present and He's all-knowing. All that is left is for Him to execute His preconceived design. And He knows what's going to come to pass as He's going to bring it to pass. Known unto God are all thy works from the foundation of the world. Nothing catches him by surprise. He does not have to back up and take another direction when he runs into a brick wall like we do. He sees all things before they are made, and he sees things just as clear in his decreed purpose as when his providence has completed his work. Think of that. God, at the end of the creation order, took great complacency in what he saw. It pleased him. But he knew just as perfectly what it was going to look like and become before he ever set out. To create. So in his purpose, he has decreed to create us, and in his providence, he brings to pass his purposes. And he does so on the basis of omnipotence. Look again in verse 16. Your eyes did see my frame or my substance, yet being unperfect or unformed. Now, folks, hold on. We're dealing with here a person is a person even within the womb. I'm not speaking to an audience today that has any problem with that. But I guarantee you in our American culture, there are millions and millions that have a problem with what we're about to cover. David was a person within the womb before he was born. Imperfect. James Montgomery Boyce, a deceased pastor teacher here in America, makes these observations on the beginning of human life. Quote, These verses plainly teach the individuality of a child while it is still in its mother's womb. You agree with that? Picking up the quote. David is not writing about abortion, of course. Nothing could be further from his mind. But no one can read these verses thoughtfully today without considering their obvious bearing on this important contemporary problem. 
The chief issue in discussions about abortion concerns the identity of the fetus. People who argue for the right of a woman to have an abortion, it's my own body, I can do with it as I please, usually argue that the fetus is not yet a person, but is only a part of the woman's body, like a gallbladder or appendix, that she can elect to have removed. That is why language describing the unborn child has changed so radically. A generation ago, everyone referred to the unborn child as a baby, and pregnant women knew they were carrying a baby. It is hard for anyone to think calmly about killing a baby. So today people talk about the fetus, or the embryo, or even mere tissue instead. To get rid of tissue doesn't seem so bad. But this is not the way the Bible speaks of the unborn child. What is more Growing medical knowledge of unborn children undermines that comfortable delusion. The Greek philosopher Aristotle speculated that the fetus became human when it quickens in the womb. That is, when the mother feels it move. Let me break the quote there. How many of you elderly women here you grew up with that uh, that concept that the first time the baby moved, why it quickened. Huh? Anybody? Maybe you're not as old as I thought you were. Hmm? That was the concept in my generation in the rural area, is that when the baby moved, it was quickened. That was the term. So let me pick up Aristotle's uh, observation again. Montgomery goes on to say, Montgomery voice. We know today that the movement of the fetus is only a matter of degree. The baby is moving all the time. Others have argued that the fetus becomes human only when it is old enough to survive outside the womb. But advances in the care of premature babies make it possible for even extremely small infants to survive, certainly infants that are younger and smaller than many being aborted. It is increasingly common today to identify life with brain activity. But we know there is brain activity in the unborn child even before the mother is aware she's pregnant. For that matter, there is a beating heart and the circulation of the baby's own blood as well. The problem with trying to determine the point before which the developing child is fully human is that there isn't one. There is an uninterrupted development of the child from the very moment in which the sperm of the father joins the ovum of the mother and the cells begin to divide. The father's seed cannot multiply by itself, nor can the mother's egg. 
But as soon as the two sets of chromosomes combine, not only does the development of life continue steadily unless interrupted, either accidentally or deliberately, but the life that is developing is a unique life. There is no other combination of chromosomes exactly like these new ones. The fetus is already a uniquely determined individual. In the perceived wording of this psalm, David is speaking of his unique individuality from the first moments of his existence in the womb. And from that very first moment, God knew him and had ordained what his life was to be. If that is how God views the unborn child, Dare we call it only tissue and destroy the unborn, as we are doing in this country at the rate of more than a million and a half babies each year, end of quote. Look at the next part of the sentence. In thy book, all my members were written. (laughs) In thy book, all my members, every part of me, was written down. Did you know God goes by the book? I have a thing on the front of one of my cars. uh, When all else fails, follow the instructions. God goes by the book. It's his book. And he wrote it in advance. He said, this is what I'm going to make Jim Gables look like. He's going to have black hair. You wouldn't know that today. It's age 70 here. He's going to be about 5'10 in his prime, going to weigh 170 pounds. He's going to be left-handed. All that was written down before he ever started to work on me. The same with you. Same with you. I look out on this audience this morning, and I don't see anybody that looks like me. Hmm? Who said, thank God? (laughs) (laughs) I'm unique. You're unique. Therefore, don't look over at another unique person and say, I'm envious of the way he or she looks. This is the way God made me. The way he made you. You're unique. As unique as the snowflake, which there's no two alike. Hmm? In thy book, all the members were written. When God gave the plans for Solomon's temple, the workers were to go by the plans And when God would build our bodies, he would go by the plans written beforehand in his book. He does not ever work extemporaneously, even in the making of a human body. You know what extemporaneously is? Sometimes preachers preach extemporaneously. They don't have any notes to go by. Others use notes and combine with extemporaneous Statements like I normally do. 
But God never made anything extemporaneously. It was all according to plan when he made you and me. Spurgeon states, An architect draws his plans and makes out his specifications. Even so did the great maker of our frame write down all our members in the book of his purposes. (laughs) He goes by the book, Brother Asa. Spurgeon says, That we have eyes and ears and hands and feet is due to the wise and gracious purpose of heaven. It was so ordered in the secret decree by which all things are as they are. God's purposes concern our limbs and faculties, their form and shape, and everything about them were appointed of God long before they had any existence. God saw us when we could not be seen, and he wrote about us when there was as nothing to write about. When as yet there were none of our members in existence, all those members were before the eye of God in the sketchbook of his foreknowledge and predestination. Look at next expression, when as yet there was none of them. I'd like to break from the passage here and make an application to the salvation of God's elect, the analogy here. There's also a book that's written down, and it's a book of salvation. Some people like to sing the song, There's a New Name Written Down in Heaven. I don't really care for that unless you're describing the providence of God in effectual calling. But my name was written down in the book before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 2.15, the Lord knows those that are his. Well, when did he know them? We've already seen he knew the end from the beginning. He's always known who his elect are. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, omnipotence, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Hmm? These sheep were given to Jesus Christ by the Father. Their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world in eternity. I have every reason to believe I'm one of those sheep. That God has loved me with an everlasting love. Therefore, he has drawn me unto himself. Those who comprise the elect members of Christ's body, even when they are yet unborn and unremembered, are nevertheless written in the Lamb's book of life. I like this. As Eve was secretly hid in the side of Adam until God was pleased to manifest her identity, So the elect members are hidden in the side of Jesus Christ until the time God is pleased to call them by his Spirit, and they become visibly manifested by their faith and holiness that they are the bride of Christ. 
even though their substance being yet imperfect, yet in the Lamb's book of life all his members were written down when as yet there were none of them. I love that. I love that. Verses 17 and 18. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they're more in number than the sand. And when I awake, I'm still with thee. Let me conclude with three thoughts in these verses flowing out of the word precious. How precious are my thoughts, your thoughts rather, unto me, O God. Consider first precious thoughts. That God should have predetermined thoughts toward the believer is the believer's treasure and pleasure. He is not troubled or alarmed, but is comforted by them. To know that God thought upon him from eternity, continues to think upon him every moment, and will think upon him when his time ends in this life, is like having a treasure chest of costly jewels. To know that even in the appointed hour of death, God is thinking of me is a comforting thought. The psalmist said in Psalm 116, verse 15, Precious in the what? In the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Hmm? To have a God always thinking of us as believers makes to a happy life, a rich life, and a heavenly life hereafter. And while God's electing purposes may trouble the unbeliever and the wicked, they delight the believer. Why? Jeremiah 29.11 gives the answer. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. End quote. It's comforting to me to know how things are going to work out. Even my death. Consider, secondly, a precious number. While all of God's thoughts of us are eternal, they are nevertheless numerous and complex. Ephesians 1.3 says, He had blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 lists the number of some of these blessings. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, Redemption, on and on and on. In addition to these exter- or these eternal blessings, when we consider all the temporal blessings which God bestows upon us daily, it's enough to consume our hearts with praise and thanksgiving day and night. When we go to sleep at night, we ought to be thanking and praising God. <laughs> And when the first thing when we wake up in the morning, 
God, you're to be praised. I thank you. Hmm? David says the thoughts are just too numerous. Psalm 40 and verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more that can be numbered. Lamentations chapter 3, 22 and 23. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions what, fail not. They fail not. They are new every morning and new every evening. Great is thy faithfulness. David likened them to the sand on the seashore. Even if we could count the sand on the seashore, we could not count the number of God's loving thoughts toward us because they are more in number than that sand. Hmm? Preparing this message several years ago and delivering it in previous cases, I'd never had this concept presented to me before, but it has helped me in my daily living. Listen carefully. Individual grains of sand may not weigh much, but when joined together, what is heavier than the wet sand of the seashore? Likewise, single, ordinary mercies may not attract our praise like one great mercy. But when joined together, their weight cannot be but squeeze out of us sounds of praise and thanksgiving to God. I ask you a question. Which would you think to be a greater act of kindness? To have a king invite you to a great dinner two or three times a year, or to feed you every day for 365 days? Of the year. Hmm? Aren't we prone to think we should only really praise God for those great unusual mercies? What about the daily mercies? Every day He's showing mercies toward us. Great is our mercies. And it's omnipotence that is behind all of this. That's why we ought to thank God for our daily food. Hmm? Stop and thank Him. Even pigs grunt before they eat. How grateful we ought to be to our feeder who gives us food to sustain us every day. Don't think that you are being overlooked if God doesn't grant you some outstanding mercy every day because He is showing mercy to you every day. Think of those thoughts. Count your many 
blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Put all that sand together and see what he has done and is doing. Lastly, consider precious communion. Precious thoughts, precious number of thoughts, precious communion. When I awake, I'm still with you. (laughs) There's never a point of time when God is not working for our good, even when we sleep. The person who goes to sleep thinking about God, thinking about them will start off the next day thinking about God. I thought that was pretty good. I come up with a good one every once in a while. So I'll I'll read it again for your benefit, okay? (laughs) The person who goes to sleep thinking about God, thinking about them, will start off the next day thinking about God. When I awake, I'm still with you. How precious is this continuous communion with God? Start your day a little bit better with thoughts of how God is thinking about you. Thoughts of God were David's first visitors in the morning. Asa, you get up early, don't you? Even before the birds start singing, don't you? I don't like those hours. God formed Asa with an early bird and formed me as an old night owl. I go to bed late and get up late. I'm late for everything. What was that? I'll do some extemporaneous thinking. What was that? Uh, uh, was it a character in The Wizard of Oz? I'm late, I'm late. Or what, what was that one? For a very important date. What? No, I can't hear any of you. Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland. Yes, that's it. I'm late, I'm late for a very important date. That would be characteristic of Jim Gable. But whatever time I wake, I wake with the understanding God's been thinking about me while I was asleep. All present for the Cox, everywhere, knows all about me and has the power to keep his protection over me. So that I'm immortal in this body until it's time for me to leave this body. Then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I'll be present with the Lord until the day is ordained for the resurrection in which that my disembodied spirit will again be put back into a new body and I shall live forever in a new heaven and a new earth. Thank God for this all-searching God. I pray you know Him today in the free pardon of sin. Let's pray. Father, take these thoughts and, oh, enlarge them, and may we rejoice in them. May we find comfort. May we have awe. 
May we see them as awesome. May we see them as that which just closes our mouth and fills our minds with wonder. To the degree that when we come to these public assemblies, that we may bring something of this awe and wonder with us that will contribute to the public worship each Lord's Day. That we may come with a spirit of expectation, a spirit of energy, a spirit of joy and enthusiasm, and may that be contagious as it is spread to others here in the fellowship. Send us now to our homes, knowing that you shall be there when we get there, that you have ordained the very paths that we're to take, that your power will watch over us until that time comes when we call us home to glory. In Christ's name, we bow and worship you today. Amen.